Today's scripture is Acts 26, 24 through 32. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might be such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Good. We on? There we go. Good morning again, everybody. My name is uh, Sean. I'm the lead pastor, teaching pastor here for Redemption Peoria. Um, If I don't know you, um, come up and say hi. I'll be out in the lobby afterwards. There's a vending machine by the Connect desk. I'll be right over there. Uh, Yeah, even if you aren't new and you've been coming for a while, continue to press. Man, come up, say hi. I met somebody a couple weeks ago who said, yeah, I've been coming since the beginning, two and a half years ago. It's like, well, good to meet you finally. Um, So anyway. Um, I want to throw out some uh, quick announcements, but before I do, just so you know a little bit about Redemption Church. Redemption Church is one church, 10 different congregations. Okay, each congregation is elder-led and lead pastor-led. So I'm the lead pastor here, but my vote is the same as the other three elders, which we have four elders here at Redemption Peoria. We don't do satellites, and nothing wrong with that. We just philosophically have come to some of the conclusions that we have in congregations the way that we have. And um, you might have some questions about that, but again, I'd, I'd love to talk with you afterwards and answer any questions that you have about that. Um, So just two quick announcements for you. The first one is if you are new and you want to get plugged into Redemption Peoria, the best place to start is the Start Here class, which if you go to the Connect desk, there's a a table there and there's some cards that you can pick up that has a link for you to to be able to do that. It's a three-week class, starts uh, the first week in October, and then again the first week in November, again the first week in December, so on and so forth, the first uh, three Sundays of every month. So if you want to do that, that's awesome. Um, We also offer a a bunch of other classes as well. Starting also in October, we're going to be doing a a marriage class. Uh, Jim Ellis is going to be leading this class. Um, In November, we're going to be doing a singles class, but there is one class that I want to uh, make you aware of. Uh, On October 15th, we're doing baptisms. It's a Sunday I explained. It's all, all family Sunday, bringing the kids in. We're doing the paintings, a story of God and baptisms all on that same Sunday. Um, but I need you to register for the, the baptism class so we can answer questions. Uh, if you have, you know, you say you want to be baptized, you know what that means. Do you have questions about how that works? All that kind of stuff. So here's what I would say. If you text 623-850-4690, text the word join, that will help you get connected to any of the classes. Um, but I need to know because this Wednesday is the baptism class at our house. And um, if you want to come up to me in the lobby and just say, hey, I want to come, I'll be giving my address out like crazy. You know, it's just a normal thing to do. Uh, and, and then also, if you, you fill out the digital connect card, I'll be able to email you all the information. We'll do dinner that night, 
uh, babysitting, all that stuff. So that's this Wednesday. Here's the second thing, okay? Um, it is September, but I want to talk to you about Christmas. If you have not been coming for, to Redemption more than six or seven, eight months since I, at the end of last year, every year on Christmas we do the same thing it started since we planted the church. Um, here's what we do. We, as a church, look at uh, the, the poor and marginalized, and we recognize that we have the ability to purchase certain things that they do not. That doesn't mean we're working harder. Matter of fact, some of us are not working as hard as some of them who can't purchase these things. It doesn't mean we're better in any way, but we are, we are able to purchase gifts for our children that they otherwise would not be able to purchase. And so here's what we do. As a congregation, we work with Title I schools, and we go out and purchase as many gifts. And when we say gifts, we mean the good stuff, not the generic Nerf guns, the real Nerf guns, okay? We go out and buy all these gifts, and we take them, and we create a store for these Title I schools. And when we create this store, we sell these toys at 10% of the cost, okay? So 90% off. The reason we do that is um, we have found that there's a sense of empowerment when someone can, can purchase a gift. It's not just us giving them this gift, oh, poor you. No, no, they, they purchase this gift. But not only that, the 10% of the, the purchase of the toy that gets, they're giving back to their school. We give all the profit to the school. We found this a very empowering way, uh, something that is not just hurting uh, when we're trying to help people. So here's what I want to say. Next week, we're going to have a meeting about the affordable Christmas stuff we're doing in Christmas, which is hilarious because now as we're growing, we're getting far more organized. People are taking over stuff. If you were with us the first, the first year we did this, it was like Christmas Eve. And I was like, all right, we're going to be doing something about with some kids. I don't know. Let's figure it out together. Now we're talking in September about the affordable Christmas stuff, which is Marsha Corby. That's hilarious. Um, so here's, here's what I want to say. Next week, uh, during second service, during the service, so you, if you want to go to that, you'd go to first service. Uh, there's going to be a meeting out in the lobby, and uh, uh, the, the, the Doherty's and the Corby's are going to be walking us through what it means to help and how. So volunteering, if you're a business owner and you say, man, I'd love to uh, support or finance in some way, or maybe I just want to purchase something, right? So here's the other thing that we do. On Black Friday, we go crazy. We, we try to raise eight to $10,000 in gift cards and send people out to buy those gifts at a decent price, right? So when we send all these people out, they need gift cards. So maybe you're going, man, I can't serve on the day that we're going to be doing it or whatever it is. You can always purchase a gift card, send it in. We're going to be collecting gift cards through the month of October. Okay, cool. Cool. Sweet. You guys are super excited about helping kids. That makes me excited about a pastor. Um, Let's do it. So uh, here's, here's where we're at. We're in Acts chapter 25 and chapter 26. Okay. We're going to be again, covering two whole chapters in the Bible. And uh, I got to catch you up if you you haven't been with us, but here's what I want to segue with. I I want to present the book of Acts because it's the same kind of story over and over. It's the premise that comes from Acts 1, 8, that Jesus tells his apostles. He doesn't say, Hey, I wrote this book, these 10 statements on how to get people saved. He, he instills within these apostles, his, kingdom and that kingdom continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. And he promises them this. He says, it's going to start here. Then it's going to grow here, here, and then all the way to the ends of the earth. And it's crazy, man, because now we're, as we're, you know, coming to the end of the book of Acts, we're, we're hitting what is the known earth. The, the, the Romans are in all, their tentacles are in all different nations and they're spreading out. And here's Paul finally in Rome. But um, what I want to get at is, is talking about this idea of mission that Jesus says Christianity 
and the way that you need to see the world the right way. I want to talk about it uh, using a little bit of different language, maybe language that some of you are familiar with and some are are, are not. And it's the language of worldview, meaning everywhere that the gospel is going, it's causing this commotion. Well, we've only seen just in Paul's life, he goes into Ephesus and it causes a riot, right? The Jews don't like him because he's bringing something else to the table that they don't believe in. In Athens, Paul's welcome to the table at Mars Hill. Everywhere that Paul's going, he's looking and he's going, this is the right way to view the world. Now, if you don't know what a worldview is, um, it's more than just the way that you view the world. Think of this. um, Process why you do the things that you do, right? So Michael Scott to Toby, why why are you the way that you are? Um, Okay, so... So, so, so think of it like this. Think of um, the, the, the political view that you have, the, the way that you view sec- same-sex relations, the way that you view God, the way that you view sports, the way that you view economics, social classes, races. This all comes from a worldview. And at times may feel subconscious, but, but what's happening is we choose to take on a certain worldview. And Paul is arriving into certain areas and going, you're believing this is the way that the world is, but I'm telling telling you you're believing wrong. And that's hard, right? For, for someone to completely change the way that they view the world, that's a big ask. And so this is what Paul's doing over and over and over again. And what we saw last week is the same idea. Paul is bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. He is bringing, as he's sitting in prison, the facts, right? Jesus comes to Paul and he goes, listen, continue to proclaim in Jerusalem, then go to Rome, the facts about me. And Paul believes what he knows to be true as he's uh, encountered Jesus in in Romans 9, which we're going to revisit in a moment. And so as we see this, the Jews don't like what Paul's doing, and so it's causing commotion. So Paul and the Jews are eventually standing before this guy named Felix. He's a governor. And, and the Jews are saying why Paul is doing all these things wrong. Felix doesn't know what to do with it. Paul is explaining, well, that's not necessarily true. And here's Felix sitting and he goes, I, I don't know what to do with this case. And for two years, he leaves Paul in prison till eventually a guy named Festus takes over Felix's job. And so now what we find in Acts 25 is this guy Festus, he's uh, taken over the commands of what Felix did before, and he still hasn't really done anything with Paul, but he's got to make a decision. So uh, Acts 25 is going to be a context, okay? It's going to be, it's going to shape where we are. It's going to uh, show us who's in the room, why things are the way that they are. And then Acts 26, the second chapter that we'll read, is what Paul says before all those people, okay? So let's get at it. Here we go. Chapter 25, verse 1. Uh, if you're new, it's going to be a big Bible study. I'll try to sum up as much as I can because it's a lot of text, but we'll read the first couple of verses to get us going. Now, Three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking a, as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning on an ambush to kill him on the way. So uh, here, here is uh, Festus. He comes in, takes over Felix's job, and he's got the same exact problem Felix had. The Jews want Paul dead, or at least want to handle Paul in a certain way, and Paul's kind of defending himself. So Festus goes in, okay, what do we got here? He goes, okay, we got this guy named Paul, he's in prison. Okay, well, the Jews come to, to Festus, and they go, hey, listen, you don't want to be dealing with this Paul guy. It's, it's a weird deal. Send him to Jerusalem, and we'll take care of everything, okay? Now, this is tempting to him for multiple reasons, but one, he wants to do the Jews a favor. Festus wants to do the Jews a favor, okay? Now, whether he knows or not that the Jews planning on killing him, we don't know, but, but he's like, okay, well, so let me go ask Paul. Maybe he wants to go to Jerusalem. So what, what uh, happens in the text next is Paul go, or uh, 
sorry, Festus goes to Paul and he says, Paul, why don't you go back to Jerusalem? Let him deal with you there, figure it all out. And Paul, a Roman citizen goes, no, 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 no. I'm a Roman. You can deal with me here. I I know, and Paul knows if he goes there, they're going to kill him. I I appeal to Caesar. He wants to go to the Supreme Court. I'm going up. I'm going higher up. Okay. So here's what happens. Festus goes, well, that sucks. Okay, so now i got to deal with this whole situation. But this guy, King Agrippa, who is over Festus, is, is, uh, happens to be traveling through the land. So King Agrippa, who is, again, over Festus, rolls in, and Festus goes, Agrippa, I'm glad you're here. I got this guy, Paul. I don't know what to do with him. Maybe, just maybe you can help me out here. It's some deal. The Jews are saying this guy, Jesus, is dead. Paul's saying he's alive. There's this big commotion about it. It's in my area of, uh, of land. I need your help figuring it out. And so King Agrippa goes, all right, well, let me hear him out. So that's where we pick up in chapter 25, verse 22. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. And then Festus says, tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So here's the next day, okay? 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. They entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with me, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. Verse 25. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So here's this room, right? It's full of the prominent Jewish men. It's full of a great pomp in that uh, King Agrippa walks in with his military uh, people. They walk in. All the great men of the city are there. Festus stands up and he goes, all right, listen up. I got this guy, Paul. He's been causing this commotion. I can't really find charges against him. So Agrippa, we're now going to, to, to hear him uh, uh, speak out and, and declare his whole, whole side of things. Maybe, just maybe, you, you can find something wrong. So as I send him away to Caesar, you know, he'll be able to, to figure out what... Uh, accusations I'm charging him with. So at that moment, verse 26 says this. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hands. I'm sorry, verse one of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. So let's stop real quick. Okay. So I need you to put yourself in the context here. Here is Paul who historically known as a, is, is known as a small man. Um, we're also known historically at uh, Galatians brings this up that he had some kind of issue with his eye, some kind of medical issue with his eye. He's there in chains. He's brought in at the command of Festus. And so he's brought in, he's surrounded by the prominent Jews. He's surrounded by the prominent men of the city, the military, the great pomp of Festus and King Agrippa are all sitting there. And in the middle of this big circle, this tribune, here stands Paul. He raises his hands and he makes the declaration on his side of things. Okay, That context is going to be super important for us. But first, let's hear what Paul has to say. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because, of your fam- uh, because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I love this. Paul's going, I'm really glad you're going to hear me, uh, King Agrippa, but do me a solid. Um, 
let me get there, okay? I got a lot to say. I'm about to tell you my life story. So don't jump to conclusions. Just be patient with me. Let me tell you how this thing rolls out, okay? This is what he says in verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that, uh, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our, our twelve tribes hope to obtain, and as they earnestly worship night and day, for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King." Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So this is where Paul starts. Be patient. Let's start with this. My upbringing was just like the Jews. As a matter of fact, I don't just believe what the Jews believe. I believe in the fulfillment of what the Jews believe. They're they're frustrated because I believe this way about this Jesus fulfilling all the promises of the Old Testament. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here now. And now he begins to go on to say, at one moment in his life, not only did he not believe in Christianity, but he hated Christianity. Paul continues to go on and explain that as he was uh, going from town to town, trying to, and I quote, destroy Christianity, he's making his way to Damascus. Now, we've heard Paul's testimony, if you've been with us in the book of Acts, one jillion times. So we, we hear it again in what he says, verse 12. In this connection, Paul, I journey to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he had fallen on the ground, when I had fallen on the, we, sorry, when we had fallen on the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So we're familiar with the story. Remember, if, if you were with us in Acts 9, um, I, I recognize that kicking against the goads is not a common term that we use, right? Corbin, stop kicking against the goads, right? Um, okay, so I, I know that. So let me explain that very quickly. The, the goads are, if you can imagine a spear, like a stick, with a, a metal uh, a tip on the end. When you're trying to move big animals, bulls or livestock, they would have these goads, and they're kind of prodding them along. Well, the, the, the animals don't like that, right? So they kick back. Well, it's only bad for them, right? Right? It's, they may not like being prodded along, but they're definitely not going to like kicking themselves into a sharp object. And so as they kick, they're kicking it ultimately into this goad and it spurs them on further. So Jesus, as, as we know the story in, in uh, Acts 9, Jesus is telling Paul in this moment, why are you persecuting me? Uh, you're kicking against the goads. Almost in some ways he's going, this is inevitable. You're trying to stop the movement. You ain't stopping me, bro. I'm unstoppable. Why are you kicking against goats? This is pointless. The more you fight, the more you spur yourself on. You're only doing my will. You're being an idiot. Stop it. Well, maybe not. But he says, so this is what it says in verse 15. And I said, who are you, Lord? This is Paul talking. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and though." I'm sorry, have seen me and to those which I will appear to you. Verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes. This is Jesus's plan. Listen to this. We're going to come back to verse 18 to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place uh, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul goes, this is what Jesus told me. He said, stop doing this. He's then told me he's going to send me to uh, rich and poor, small, big, it doesn't matter. And I'm going to go to the nations, the Gentiles, and I'm going to proclaim the goodness of God. 
then finally, the last passage where we're going to stop and spend some time, and then we'll read uh, the end uh, together. It says this. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The last thing that he says is he goes, listen, Jesus gave me this task, and I don't care who I need to go to, I'm going to go to anyone I can get on. Great or small, it doesn't matter. I'm going to go to everyone I can, and I'm going to share the right way to view the world. And this is where we've got to stop. Because I, I want to go back to chapter 25, and I want to put us in the context. Paul is not just yelling this to the air. He's talking to a certain room here. Now, here he is in his chains, making this declaration the way that he's to view the world. But who is he? I mean, think about the room for a moment. The prominent men, look back in Acts, uh, uh, or, um, yeah, 25, verse 2. The chief priests and the principal men of the Jews, Agrippa and Bernice come in with great pomp, the audience hall with military tribunes. At one moment, Paul can't even talk until Festus. Paul's brought in, and Agrippa says to Paul, you now have permission to speak. Man, this sums up, if we're talking worldview, this sums up the ethos of the Roman worldview. Paul is in the midst of a council of people who believe power is the way. Control is the way. Authority is the way. Julius Caesar was quoted in saying, as long as someone triumphs over someone else, the victor can do whatever he wants to the defeated. That's Rome. Listen, we own you. I've pinned you. You're mine. We have, we have ethnic cleansing, racial genocide, infant genocide, racial enslavement. The Romans dominated. And this room shows it. As Paul's proclaiming this different way to view the world, who is he? He's got chains. Agrippa's on a throne. And yet, for some crazy reason, here's this small little midget. I shouldn't have said that. I was told not to say that word, so I apologize. Um, this small man, okay? Here's this small man. And, and here he is. He's in chains, he's broken. He's been in prison, and yet he's before a king. Who is this guy that when he goes to Athens is standing before the philosophers? Who's this guy who goes to Ephesus and they think he's a god? Who is this guy? I I looked at this this past week, 100 most influential men and women in all of history. Paul was number six on the list. Behind Confucius. Confucius, I can never pronounce that. And Buddha might add you. I think Buddha was number four. So here's Paul. Who is this guy in his chains? And this is why this is important. This is why this is a big deal. Because the worldviews are on display. Now, here's here's what what I want to point to. Because I think contextually this is a big point. Um, Paul begins to tell his story. But for the first time, he tells a part of the story that he hasn't told at all in the rest of the book of Acts. Again, if you've been with us long enough, you know he's told his story over and over and over again. But not one time did he mention kicking against the goats. Not one time. We see it happen in, in Acts 9 with, with, with Paul uh, uh, being converted. Jesus says this, 
But Paul never brings this up in the other times that he tells his story. And I think this is a contextual play because check it out. I think Paul is turning the, the room on its head. Paul is going, King Agrippa, Festus, I, I was like you. See, see, I was like you. I thought I had all of my ducks in a row. I thought I viewed the world the right way. I thought my philosophies and my ideas and my theology were correct. So much so that, that I, I allowed it to fester within me to dominate this Christian way. But hear me when I tell you this, King Agrippa. Man, listen, at the end of the day, I was kicking against the goads. I didn't have the power. He has the power. I didn't have the control. He has the control. See, you see these chains as being defeated and you're thrown as a victory, but that's where you're wrong. See, the way that I view the world, the way things are supposed to work, is, is not, not the power, not the comfort, not the control, not the popularity, not the prestige, not everything that you have, not dominating people. That, that's not the way that I view the world. And Paul very slyly uses this contextual idea of, Agrippa, you're kicking against the goats. Your worldview, the way that you think things are supposed to be, hear me, it's wrong. It's wrong. Now, when a man in chains says this to someone on the throne, I think the only proper response from the world's perspective is this. And as Paul, he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul, how could you think your way of viewing things, your worldview is correct? You're in chains, bro. We get to decide when you talk. We get to decide when you eat. We get to decide your life. You've got no power. Your worldview has failed you. You're out of your mind. Believe a guy rose from the dead. Paul, brilliantly, says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational Words. That word rational is soza in Greek. It's where we get our word salvation, but more pro- appropriately, it's the same word that we were transliterated to sobriety. No, 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 no. You don't get it, Festus. You're not thinking soberly. I, I'm presenting the real, dense way the world is. You believe in fluff. You think your throne gives you power. I too thought that, but I was kicking against the goats. I was pressing against the inevitable. The wave of Jesus is just too powerful. Now he goes on to say this, for the king knows about these things. Now Paul turns his attention to Agrippa. And to him, I speak boldly. Paul steps out for a moment. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except of these chains. Verse 30, let's finish it out. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, now I need you to hear those last lines because this is revealing of the Roman worldview. They're still thinking, Paul, you've lost. He could have been set free. 
all the while they're the ones in chains. This is a juxtaposition that Paul, though physically, looks defeated. It's the Romans who have the wrong worldview. It's the Romans who are enslaved. This is huge for us. Contextually, this is so huge for us. Because hear me when I say this. Um, We don't have to live in Rome to have alternate worldviews. Because let me explain to you what an alternate worldview is. At the end of the day, what the Romans are holding on to, all it is is fake good news. They believe power. They, They really believe it. They believe it to be good news. As long as I can dominate, that's good news. But it's fake good news. It's an alternate good news. It looks like good news, but it's not really good news. See, if we have control of the lands, if I'm sitting on the throne, that's all fake. That that looks like good news. It may feel like good news, but it's not really good news. It's this alternate news. Now listen, we don't got to live in a room to to see this. Because some of us sit in this room right now and we think, man, Trump is going to make it right. And I don't mean this in a cliche way. There are some of us who literally think finally we have someone who's going to be able to get all these things in a row. And as long as Trump's there, hear me, that's fake good news. But the other side is true because there's some of you who think, man, if Trump was just out of office and we got a president in there who, who knew how to operate with all the racists and, 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 and did everything that all the political parties want to do, even if we had the perfect president, hear me, it's fake good news. There, there's, there's no good news in that. It feels right, and it may look right for a moment, but we do this. We do this with comfort. We do this with our educational system. I mean, post-enlightenment philosophy is, the problem is ignorance. If we could just engage people to get them enough knowledge, there will be no more wars. There'll be no more problems. Hear me, there's always going to be sin. Until Jesus returns, it's all fake good news. You may think, our school systems may think, our cultural philosophies may think, that's the answer, but we're just Rome. We're viewing Paul, and we're going, that's crazy. That's not the answer. You're out of your mind. But hear me. It's the true and rational, the sobering, the saving worldview we have to hold on to. It is true. It is real. It's the way to view the world. Because here's how we know this. Everything else has let us down. How's education treating us? It's just let us down. As long as you can obtain that next thing, that job, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that spouse, that, that, that currency, whatever it is, it's all fake good news. You're pedaling along. But at the end of the day, it's, it's an alternative to the real good news. Festus has bought it. Felix bought it. Agrippa bought it. The Romans bought it, our culture bought it, and in a lot of ways, the church has bought into it. Um, I want to share something because I think this is a, a big deal. I, I read, I told you guys over the summer, I read a book called Signs Amid the Rubble by uh, a guy named Leslie Newbegin, who um, spoke when he was, I think, early 30s. He gave four lectures on progress. Now, this is 70, 75 years ago. And Leslie Newbegin was a, a missionary to India. And, and I, his observations are super unique because he's spending time in a minority culture amongst the, the Indians there. And, and, and as he's looking um, at the, the modern world, the Western world, specifically for him, Europe at the time, he's noticing things that, that um, otherwise people aren't noticing because he wasn't swimming in that pond. 
right? So he's not, he's not seeing all those things. So, so the first lecture that he gives and talking about progress and all this, he, he uh, explains this idea of let's, let's pretend for a moment there's a man from Mars. And he talks about why that's hilarious. We always use this man from Mars. But let's talk about this man from Mars. He arrives on Earth. And as he's on Earth, he's looking for the epicenter of culture. He's looking for where all the arrows are pointing. If you want to know about um, a success, if you want to know about the way that we should view the world, all the arrows are pointing to where. And he observes that every country he goes to, it's always pointing to the Western world. Now, if we can be straight for a moment, uh, putting Lesson New Begin aside, I would say in all the traveling of the world, for the most part, not always, it's, it is currently for us America. I remember even being in, in um, the Philippines, and the Filipinos would even describe certain Filipinos as westernized and not westernized. Like they bought into the American dream, the American idea of retirement, the American idea of the white picket fence, having a certain amount of kids. This is what they believe to be success. And, and Newbegin, back to Newbegin, his point is, I wanted to find this Martian saying this, I wanted to find where I'm supposed to go. Where are all arrows pointing? And so this is what he says as the um, Martian, again, arrives in this place. He says this, and I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to explain it. He had come not to the center of civilization, but to the dark continent. He would feel like the Elizabethan explorers who set out to find El Dorado and instead found a cannibal island. And if he managed to escape and return to tell his tale, I think the moral of it would be that we had better ask ourselves very earnestly whether, uh, sorry, whether this civilization in which we are so immersed has any future at all. And whether we who almost unconsciously accept and follow the standard set by this civilization have not in fact got into the wrong bus. Let me explain this quote, what he's saying here. Okay. He starts off with this idea. Finally, the Martian makes it to where all the arrows are pointing. That's the win. That's the way we should view the world. That's it. He comes to arrive at the center of civilizations, but he realizes he didn't come to the center of civilization. He actually came to the dark continent. Everything he thought it was, when it played out, it was all bad. Then he goes on to say, he would feel like the Elizabethan explorers who set out to find El Dorado and instead found a cannibal island. If you know that reference, the idea being that explorers go to find uh, this great undiscovered place, but instead they find a place that only is filled with death. Okay? And then this is where the money statements come in. And if he managed to escape and return to tell his tale, I think the moral of it would be that we had better ask ourselves very earnestly whether this civilization in which we are so immersed has any future at all. So he starts with this idea of, so he comes as an outside observer. He sees this civilization that's supposed to bring life. Man, man, he sees, so let's, let's put it contextually. He sees the American dream. He sees you getting your education. You've got two cars, no house payment. You've got your kids. You're married. You're set to retire at 60. Things are awesome. And at the end of the day, you've arrived at the dark continent. And if we're not careful, listen to this. He had found a cannibal island, go on and so forth. I think the moral of it would be that we'd better ask ourselves very earnestly whether this civilization, civilization in which we are so immersed has any future at all. Then he goes on to say this, and whether we are... Whether we who uh, almost, okay, let's try and whether we who almost unconsciously accept and follow the standards set by this civilization have not in fact got onto the wrong bus. When it's all said and done, I can't believe I believed this fluff. Nobody who's given their life to the American ethos, the American culture, the philosophies of our day sits on their deathbed and goes, I'm glad I worked 90 hours a week. I'm glad I neglected my kids. I feel so fulfilled in that. And I'm glad I bought into the culture of, of, 
of having all these things. I'm glad I bought into to the philosophy of just making sure that I educate people. At the end of the day, his point, Newbegin's point is going, no, no, no. Without the proper worldview, we're going to go, I think we got on the wrong bus. I believe the lies of our culture and our civilization, and I was wrong. And this is exactly what Jesus has called us to. Listen again, Paul's calling, verse 18, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Do you hear what Jesus, Paul, I'm sending you out? Because those worldviews are lies. So, so, man, has education lived up to everything it promised? How does that guilt feel when you don't get it right? How does the pressures of doing everything exactly the way you're supposed to do them and you just can't get your feet under you, how, how does it feel when, when you lose a loved one? It, like, like the world, all those problems, does it live up to what it, what it said to do? When Jesus says, listen, those lies, those fake gospels out there, they're in darkness. Our friends, our family, our co-workers, they're in darkness. They're believing the wrong way to understand the world. They're believing it the wrong way. And I'm sending you, I'm sending you again, and I quote, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Hear me. That sentence could end with this. By the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place. They could finally find a place to settle in. I'm telling you, hear me when I say this. If you are not a Christian, not a believer, I'm not going to have everyone close their eyes and raise their hands. But believe me, my charismatic roots want me to right now. The lie that you've believed, you continue to feel like it's on shaky ground. Let's call it sand, if you will. And, and you continue to, to, to build and build and build and build. And for whatever reason, there's this hole within you and you just can't find your place. The only place that is, the only spot you're going to find that is viewing the world correctly. And that is through the lens of Jesus Christ. Hear me. The guilt, the shame, the, the, the loss of power you feel, the, the, the idea that you can't do enough. At the end of the day, it's been taken care of by the cross. There's forgiveness of those sins. Any other worldview does not afford you that. Any other worldview. It demands and it demands and it demands. Now, this is the hope of the world. This is the right way to view the world. So this is what I'm going to leave you with. Something I didn't do in first service, but when I have time, I like to use it all up. So let's do that. Um, I want to practically give you some ways that I think are important for us leaving this room. Because the reality is, um, as arrogant as this may sound, we have the right way to view the world. We have the proper worldview. Okay? But you're going to encounter everyone else around you, the, the air that the culture is breathing, and they're not going to have the same worldview. And you want to immediately uh, push this worldview on them. And in some ways, the Ephesian riots and standing before Martha, you are like, yeah, see, they just rejected the gospel, but it had nothing to do with them rejecting your worldview. It had everything to, with, uh, to do with them rejecting you and your tact. So 
I found six things in here that I think are important for us to leave here when we talk about engaging with our friends. And I'm not usually this practical, but um, I've got five minutes, so I'm going to share it with you. The first thing is, this is what Paul does in this moment. He uses his own story. Okay? No one can argue with you being changed. Do you understand? Now, they can go, well, I know other people are changed. That's fine. But they have to at least go, bro, you were someone else, and you are totally someone different. Paul uses that. He uses his own story. The second thing is he does it with two things, boldness and respect. Like he doesn't go Agrippa. Oh, you think you're some king, huh, Agrippa? You think you're a king? No, he does it with boldness and respect. He would probably died a lot sooner if he would have done that. Okay, he's, he's not looking for the riot. He's not looking to try to instigate anyone. He's looking to present his worldview, but he does it with boldness. At the same time, he does it with respect. The other thing is he constantly makes it about Jesus. Jesus visited me. Jesus sent me. They're upset with me because I'm explaining the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. So this isn't self-help. Hear me. Because some of us can leave here. We go, well, if you just believe the right thing and it becomes mechanical. No, no, no. It's got to be about Jesus. Jesus cares about the depths of the human being, not just the actions. Okay? So making it about Jesus. Number four. Um. This is really important. Paul is amazing at being contextual. You understand? Like so contextual. So whether he's, if he's with athletes, he's using athletic ideas. If he's with skaters, he's using skating ideas. If he's with philosophers, he's using big, broad, ethereal ideas. When he's now here with Agrippa, he recognizes it's a power dynamic. And so what does he do? He uses the idea of kicking against the goads in his testimony. But, he, but if you notice, go back and read the other times he shares his story. He emphasizes other points in his story depending on who he talks to. He's so amazingly contextual. So be contextual. This is us sharing our worldview. World the fifth thing is... We're will, he's willing to, for it to be in the long haul. Like he recognizes and he tells the grip of this. I don't care if it was a short time or a long time. I'll sit here for the next hundred years if you would be saved. So we're not going to our neighbor and go, hey, guess what? You're going to hell. You believe the wrong worldview. Okay. Um, now it's funny, but I've heard some crazy stories, y'all. Okay. So at the end of the day, it's relational. It's getting to know them and it's in for the long haul. Now that doesn't mean you don't ever say anything. I mean, up front, I got the whole, like, I'm a pastor. So, like, when I meet someone new, what do you do? I'm a pastor. And they're like, well, I know where this conversation's going. I'm like, yes, we can have it now. Let's do it right now, okay? So um, continue willing to do in the long haul. And then here's the last one. I think this is really important. Um, if you look at verse 29, uh, Paul said, whether for a short time I would uh, to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. You can hear this, and even more so for the Jews in Romans 9 uh, through 11. Paul makes this declaration that I would give my body, my soul, to go to Hades and hell if it mean all the Jews were to be saved. The, the, the last one is, he really does care. This is, this is an important one, and maybe, maybe um, the most important one when it comes to our tact as Christians engaging other worldviews. You want to from Facebook or you want to from Twitter or you want to just watch the news and lob grenades, but you don't care. You don't really care about them. So, so check it out. Share the gospel with people you care about. That it breaks their heart that they're believing the lies like King Agrippa. That they think the power dynamics, the comfort, the prestige matter. Do you really care about them?
So this is where I'll finish because my time's up. Uh, last week, I said, come and see me in the lobby, but I had to bolt right afterwards, right away. Um, and that is because I had to go get my turtle. Um, so no, this is true. Let's keep going, though. As Paul said, be patient with me. Um, okay, so um, when Candace and I got married, uh, this is uh, romantic, Sean. It sounds super romantic. I always look back and go, that's so lame. But I gave Candace in a little promise ring. Inside the promise ring was a dollar, okay? And this goes back to stories of my dad. Anytime I'd ask him for money, he would always go, well, I got a dollar, right? And he was a drug addict. We were super poor and, and all that. And um, so I told her very romantically, I promise to give you, even, even if it's my last dollar, we have it together. Oh, okay, well, you didn't give it, but I was, it was romantic. So um, I knew going into the pastorate, I knew um, I wasn't going to be a rich dude. But at the, at the time, I was under a pastor who wrote a book on finances. And he continued to press this idea um, in his book that you're to leave something to your kids' kids. And I knew that I just didn't have the finances at that time to leave anything to our kids' kids. But I wanted to leave something, okay? And so um, Candace and I, the week we got married, went and got an African sulcutta spurred tortoise because we knew it would live over 100 years old. So we got this tortoise that's about the size of a quarter at the time. And over the last 11 years, it's big enough now for my kids to ride on. It's in our backyard. We've got three of them, by the way, now. Just a mess, okay? Um, We got three big ones. We got like 15. So if you need a turtle, I got one, Um, okay? So they're, they're big. Well, his name's John. Uh, long story why his name's John, okay? But his name's John. And I would lose all the other tortoises, but this, our tortoise that we got when we were, uh, um, uh, first got married, he broke out through the back gate. They're devilish little animals, okay? He broke out the, through the, the, the gate and got away. And I, I don't know where he was. So I was really bummed because for me, that was kind of like an iconic symbol for us to go, hey, we get to pass this on to our kids, whether they want it or not. Our kids... Our kids, and then even to, to our grandkids. This is something we can give to them, right? Because I don't know what we're going to be able to give to them, unless you guys start paying us more money, okay? Um, so, so we're going to give them this turtle. And, and, and we lost it. It really sucked, right? So um, last week, I get a text, and it just says, I have your tortoise. And I was like, I got to go, okay? So I was like, Vince, you got this, bro. You got it. I'm out, Okay. So I go pick up this giant tortoise in our small little Prius, and I was super jacked. Now, here's why I say this. The moment we lost the tortoise, I, I, I had to find this thing. And so I posted pictures, well, not pictures of the tortoise. That would just be weird. But I posted poster boards of, like, lost tortoise. Um, then I put in parentheses, yes, this is for real. <laughs> please call. Please call. And then I left my phone number. And that's why this guy shot me a text. He first called, but we were in service, and then he shot me a text. But here's, here's what I'm saying, and this is what I want to finish with. Um, I, I, as Candace and I were conversing about this whole deal, I thought about it and I thought, man, imagine what it would be like to like lose a child. Like I feel this way about a freaking tortoise, okay? And like the lostness of that child, like, like we were thinking about this, even for our, our, our tortoise thinking that turtle is somewhere. He's somewhere right now and we don't know where he is, but I want to find him. And there was this like, I'll go, I'll spend the 20 bucks at Walmart to buy the poster board and the markers to find him. We're going to tape it up on the stop signs. I was covering stop signs, no joke. Okay, Um, we were posting this on mailboxes. We're just putting it everywhere that we can, okay? There was this, I care enough about this tortoise to do all of these things, right? And at the end of the day, you may not think that, you may think, well, that's just the dumbest thing you've ever heard, right? In a lot of ways, you're Agrippa and I'm Paul, right? You think this is crazy and I'm out of my mind. But here's my point. Um, What if, and this is why I process this whole thing, like, do I care about the lost in that way? And I know it's a cheesy example, but like, 
do I care enough to pursue? Like, like Paul's traveling right now from Jerusalem to Rome. That's an eight-hour flight. That's almost like walking from California to Florida. That's how long that walk is. I mean, this isn't an easy thing. He cares. He cares about this kingdom being on display. He wants people to know. My prayer is that we would want to know and have a proper worldview, but we would want to and care deeply enough to share this worldview with others. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for who you are. I'm grateful that um, we uh, get the time that we do to, to read through uh, Acts 25 and 26. It's such a stirring juxtaposition to see Paul in chains, this sixth most influential man in all of history. And most people probably don't even know who King Agrippa is. Uh, just thank you, Jesus, that it's your kingdom. It wasn't Paul. Jesus, it's you in Paul. It's not Paul. It's you doing these things. It's your power. And when we try to fight against these things, when we try to have alternate good news as fake good news is we're just kicking against the goads. At the end of the day, if we rationally, soberly sit down and process the facts, we will arrive at the cross. Jesus, let us do that well. I pray you stir us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.